I've been preaching this sermon series on the parables of Jesus from the Gospel of Luke. I'm going to preach this one from Luke chapter 18, verse 9. It's a wonderful story. I love this story. But uh, the preacher's bane is that the bulletin deadline is on Tuesday at noon, and then terrible things happen in the world late in the week, some close to home, some far away. So I thought about tossing this story aside and looking for a word from the Lord elsewhere in the scriptures, but then I decided just to listen to it. So let's see if God's speaking to us through this beautiful story of Jesus. So Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Jesus said two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, like thieves and rogues, adulterers, and even like that tax collector over there. I fast twice a week and I tithe all of my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up into heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all who humble themselves will be exalted. Pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I'm going to give you a little one-question, multiple-choice quiz. Who said this? Eventually, you realize that there are no answers, just stories. Was that A, Jesus of Nazareth, or B, Garrison Keillor? Either way, it's a small-town boy. Eventually, you realize that there are no answers, just stories. It's actually Garrison Keillor who said that. He gave his last monologue a couple of weeks ago after 42 seasons or almost 2,000 news from Lake Wobegons. President Obama called Mr. Keillor during Prairie Home Companion to thank him for telling the story of small-town America. You always made me feel more human, said the president to Mr. Keillor. Eventually, you realize that there are no answers, just stories. Jesus could have said that, right? Jesus might not have said that there are no answers, but he also might have said that what answers there are, are story-shaped. He preached a few sermons during his day, but mostly he told stories. That's because he loved us. Two men went up to the temple to pray, says Jesus. One is a Presbyterian minister. He is the senior minister at an important congregation at a prominent corner in a wealthy town. He is a good husband and a good father. He serves on the board of Habitat for Humanity. He donates to the Humane Society and never kicks his own dog. He coaches his son's Little League team. He recycles his newspapers. The other is, well, you can pick your own bad guy. Bernie Madoff, Tony Soprano, 
the baseball coach who absconds to Las Vegas with all the Little League funds, the guy in your neighborhood who stamps out false IDs for 17-year-olds. That's what a tax collector was for Jesus' original audience, a first-century symbol for everything that was greedy and dishonest and ignoble. Jesus' audience would have winced when they heard him talk about a tax collector. They would have spit it out with contempt. And so anyway, the minister stands there in the middle of the chancel with his arms outstretched, looking up into heaven, standing by himself, says Jesus, and his prayer is, thank you, God, that I'm not like everybody else, thieves, rogues, and that guy in my congregation who's cheating on his wife or that dirty ex-con who's sitting over there in the corner. And meanwhile, Tony Soprano is over in the corner praying, God, I beg you, be merciful to me, a sinner. He will not look up into heaven. He's too embarrassed. And then Jesus lunges forward with the rapier point of his unusual anthropology and punctures every inflated ego within hearing. I tell you, says Jesus, this man, this ex-con guy, he went to his home righteous and not that other guy, that senior minister guy. Because everybody who exalts himself in this world will be humbled and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. Have any of you come across this eccentric little novel, The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime, maybe 10 years ago, maybe a little more? The protagonist and narrator of The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime is both autistic and a mathematical genius. He introduces himself on page two. My name is Christopher John Francis Boone. I know all the countries in the world and their capital cities, and I can tell you every prime number up to 7,057. In an instant, Christopher can give you the product of a three-digit number multiplied by a two-digit number, but Christopher's brain is rigid and uh, incapable of social nuance. He doesn't understand social interaction. He says, I find people confusing. That's because they talk a lot without using any words. For instance, if you raise one eyebrow, it might mean I want to do sex with you, or it might mean I think what you just said is very stupid. He can tell neither jokes nor lies and refuses to be touched. Now, we used to call such folk idiot savants. Now, more compassionately, just savants from the French word savoir, to know. Dustin Hoffman's Rain Man from the great film is another example. These people are so damaged in some ways and yet so superior in others. So, a few years ago, two Harvard neurologists decide to, decided to study these savants savants to see how their minds work and they came up with what I think of as a provocative phrase. They talked about the pathology of superiority. The pathology of superiority. Christopher Boone's mind is so mathematically superior and yet it's almost a pathology because that's the only part of his brain that he can use. I don't want to talk about Christopher Boone in my sermon this morning. I'm just intrigued by that phrase. 
That's what I thought of when I read this story by Jesus, the pathology of superiority. We know all about an inferiority complex, right? We know people who have inferiority complexes. But do you know anybody who has a superiority complex whose only prayer is, thank you, God, that I'm not like everybody else? And if you know somebody like that, how is that experience going for you? I went into a coffee shop one Halloween and all the baristi were in costume and the young woman who took my order was covered head to foot with sponges, sponges all over her body. And I said, what are you supposed to be, SpongeBob SquarePants? And she said, no, I'm self-absorbed. <laughs> Do you know anybody who cruises the streets covered head to toe in sponges? And how are you finding that experience? And Jesus gets his point across by pointing out an often overlooked detail of the story. He tells us what's wrong with this Pharisee. He says the Pharisee prays standing alone, set apart. He's standing. He's standing on his dignity. He's standing on his righteousness. He's standing way off from the rest of us. He is alone. And that's the way he likes it. The pathology of superiority, or to slightly tip the expression, the pathology of certainty, the pathology of feeling closer to God than to your fellow human beings. I don't know what God's trying to say to me through this story this morning, but it seems to me that the Islamic State is the quintessence of self-righteousness, the pathology of certainty. One Islamic State cleric said a couple of years ago, if you cannot find a bomb or a bullet, single out the disbelieving American or Frenchman and smash his head in with a brick or slaughter him with a knife or run him over with your car. And the whole world feels so unsafe just now. Close to home, far away, 19 people shot in our own city this weekend. Western democracy feels infected from within and embattled from without. Internally, America weakens and fevers from the virus of racism. And externally, there are all these sick, crazy fanatics who take one look at the Statue of Liberty and just want to throw up. Or they hear the battle cry of Bastille Day, Liberté, Egalité, Fraternité, Freedom, Equality, Friendship. And it just makes them seethe with rage. They don't want freedom. They don't want equality. They don't want friendship. So what's a, a word from the Lord? Three things came to me late in the week. I'll be quick. Resolve. Resolve in our commitment to our scriptures, right? As Christians, we have this sacred story that tells us about a carpenter from Nazareth who adhered to the power of love rather than to the love of power. That is our sacred story. We don't know what your story tells you, who you are, but this is who we are. This is who we are as Christians and as Americans. We also have a sacred scripture, right? The Constitution, maybe not the very word of the Lord, but very close for us. And we will never sacrifice or relinquish our sacred scripture as Americans.
and will resolve to be as unlike our antagonists as it is possible to be. So resolve first and perspective. We've been here before and we've always survived. We were having dinner the other night with friends at my house, other Kenilworth Union people. I was born in 1957. We're all getting way too close to 60. So we've seen a lot of 20th century American history. And someone at the dinner table asked, do you think the world is as bad as it's ever been in our lifetime? It's a good question. We didn't have an answer for it, but I thought about it overnight, and my answer is not by a long shot. Do you remember Watts? in 1965, or Newark and Detroit in 1967. Do you remember April 4, 1968? Do you remember Vietnam? Do you remember the stress of the Cold War, the horrors of detente? Do you remember September 11, 2001? Do you remember the convention in Chicago in 1968? President Obama, who knows what racism is, tried to tell us the other day that it's not as bad as it looks in the media. He says that white Americans and black Americans and blue Americans love each, more, love each other more than it looks and are jealous for each other's thriving. We all want each other to flourish. We all want each other to grow old enough to see our grandchildren give birth to great-grandchildren. So resolve and perspective and finally faith because it might be all we have to throw up against the rage that comes at us from abroad. Faith that the world is cradled in hands more loving and powerful than the rage of malice. That the world is held in the embrace of a wisdom and love that are greater than our own. I wish I had better answers for the puzzles that bedevil us. But eventually you realize that there are no answers, just stories. And sometimes the stories are terrifying. Sometimes they descend into the shadow of Sheol. They have twists and turns. Innocence die. Freedom, equality, and friendship are th threatened. Children are mowed down by a serviceable lorry. Still, all our little stories are swallowed up in God's greater story, the God who loves us and wills our flourishing. As Martin Luther King put it, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward the light. No answers, just stories. And while there are times when it doesn't look like it, this is God's story, and it will have a happy ending. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.